Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute, the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the certified ETF advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me to kick off 2024 on ETF Prime will be three of the absolute best in the ETF business. I, I mean, seriously, these are three of the very best ETF analysts out there. I'll first be joined by Laura Krieger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify, who will offer up a, a number of ETF predictions for 2024. And I have the list of these. I'm not sure I fully agree with all of them, but I absolutely love the uh, thought and creativity here. And so we're going to discuss and uh, debate these predictions, which do include some spot Bitcoin ETF topics and also an area that Laura believes could flop this year, which I think may surprise some people. I'll then be joined by both Anikit Alal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA, and Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. I'm really excited about this because we're going to have a full roundtable discussion on ETFs in 2024, including on Anikit's four ETF trends to watch and Todd's four contrarian ETF ideas. And the format here will be a lot of fun because I'm just going to uh, tee up each of these trends or ideas and we're going to bat them around. So you'll, you'll get to hear the unique perspectives of CFRA, who's one of the world's leading independent investment research firms, and Strategas, who's an institutional brokerage and advisory firm that I think offers some of the best ETF analysis out there. Uh, truly just a fantastic way to kick off the year on ETF Prime. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining me as we embark on the 13th year of this podcast. 13th year, which is uh, hard to believe. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with Vetify's Laura Krigger. 
Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, happy uh, new year. Are you ready for uh, another year on ETF Prime? I am so excited to be here. Happy New Year. And more importantly, happy 15th anniversary of Bitcoin debuting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> happy Satoshi Day. <laughs> 15, you're right. 15th anniversary and 13th year of this podcast. So we have a... I mean, that's so exciting. So exciting. Another great year in, in the works for you. Uh, I'm excited. Um, okay. So I do have your list of 2024 ETF predictions, uh, which I have to tell you, I hope your predictions go better than mine did last year because I had an absolutely brutal year with my annual list of five ETF predictions. Uh, I went one for five. And so uh, when you heard me say there at the top that I disagree with some of your predictions, just keep that in mind because I've been wrong <laughs> a lot recently. Um, all right. So so let's go through these. Your first prediction is that Vanguard will overtake BlackRock as the number one ETF issuer by assets under management. Now, uh, as of this morning, I show Vanguard trailing BlackRock by about, we'll say, $235 billion in assets. Um, so do, do you really think they can make up that much ground this year? I mean, that's a pretty big gap. It's a pretty big gap, um, but it's actually a prediction I'm fairly confident about um, because in the grand scheme of things, it's 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 really not that big of a gap, right? It's within spitting distance. And I think that uh, the reason that Vanguard has gained so much on BlackRock over the past few years, it's fairly intuitive uh, because across their ETFs, they have, look, an average expense ratio in the single digits. They have a lineup of products that has uh, pretty much every one of the core portfolio asset classes and strategies and styles in it. There's very little fluff in the Vanguard lineup, no shiny objects, just the stuff that investors want. Uh, on top of it, the company has really benefited tremendously from uh, their economies of scale. Being able to rely on the fact that their ETFs exist as a share class of their mutual funds means they're able to own these big, huge, diverse portfolios of securities and then offer them for really cheap. So the patent on that uh, model expired last year, of course. We've seen some ETF issuers pick up on that model so it can benefit them too. But look, at the end of the day, let's not forget that Vanguard has an honest-to-God fan base. They have cultivated a sense of community among their shareholders that's like lightning in a bottle. You're not going to be able to replicate that easily. You're not just a Vanguard investor. You're a Boglehead, right? That is brand loyalty that's that's hard to manufacture. And so at this point, I think there's not much that can derail them from taking over the world, much less from taking over, uh, overtaking their, their nearest rival in assets. But just to be clear, is this a 2024 prediction, something you think can happen this year? Or are you just saying longer term? Because I guess I, I certainly agree with you directionally that I, I think at some point Vanguard will overtake BlackRock in, in ETF assets. But if I look last year, I show Vanguard brought in about 160 billion, BlackRock about 110 uh, billion. 
in uh, in new money. So that two hundred and thirty five billion dollar gap just seems like a it seems like a big gap to close. <laughs> this is their year. I'm gonna. I mean, it's gonna happen some you know eventually, and I'm gonna be bold because what else is making uh, predictions on on January third? But an exercise in boldness. So I'm gonna say this is their year. I like that. Now, uh, I, I might actually take the opposite side of this. So I'll tell you to stay tuned for my um, annual bad predictions later this week. Um, but I could actually see BlackRock growing market share this year. And Laura, you know what's going to help BlackRock? Spot Bitcoin ETFs, which gets into another one of your predictions that uh, I, I think we're going to disagree on. So you say Bitcoin ETFs launch but they fail to gain more than $100 million in assets combined in their first month. Uh, yeah. I'll be honest, I'm shocked by that. Why are you so bearish on spot Bitcoin ETFs? Oh, so it's, it's interesting, right? There's been uh, you know, so much happening in the past few weeks so quickly that if you blink, you've missed 15 new developments in Bitcoin ETF uh, proposal land. We saw a flood of new filings in the last half of December with uh, issuers updating expense ratios and authorized participants and creation redemption details all in prep for launch. Uh, 14 proposals ahead of the SEC right now. There's been some excellent reporting on the differences and, and the various evolutions in, in, in these proposals from um, Bloomberg and Ben Strack over at Blockworks. But from what I've seen of all of this chaos, all of, or, uh, all this hullabaloo, I should say, about APs and cash creates and expense ratios, it, it's all coming from within the house, by which I mean, it's mostly us the ETF industry watchers, you and me, who've been watching these launches so closely. Uh, I didn't get a single crypto question from friends and family over the holidays. That's the first time that's happened in 10 years. So I'm pretty sure the bloom is off the rose on crypto. The shiny object chasers, the regular retail investors, they just don't care. They're off chasing you know, artificial intelligence and everything uh, along that. So, and, and meanwhile, the Bitcoin true believers, they don't, they don't trust an ETF. They, they're not going to invest in an ETF. They're just going to invest in Bitcoin directly like they always have. So, you know, I, I, um, you know, I remember a year ago or so I was on the show. I said, you know, we're going to get a spot Bitcoin ETF eventually. But by that point, is anybody really going to still care? I stand by that. And my prediction is, yes, we will see these things launch. We will see them launch soon. But I would be surprised if any of them gain more than a few million in flows over what they're seeded with in you know, the first month. And, and let's be fair here. Some of those seeds are big. Bitwise, for example, has a seed of about 200 million that I saw ready to roll at launch. Uh, so when I say 100 million, I'm talking on top of that seed. It's going to be tough. They need organic growth. There's a lot of resistance among investors. I think the only exception here might be Grayscale. Because, of course, their fund would be a conversion and not a, a launch from scratch. And there's about $26 billion in GBTC right now. So if they're allowed to convert that fund, if the SEC allows it, then suddenly it becomes one of the largest ETFs on the market. Crypto or no, it's just one of the largest ETFs. And that in and of itself is a, power, a powerful draw for investments. But I think there's just a very steep cliff to climb here. Once again, I love the boldness of this prediction, but um, I, I completely disagree. I, I think we'll have more than 100 million in assets after day one. Oh, sure, sure. Assets, yes. 
right? Because you you got to uh, take into account seed. And there's going to be some some big seed coming in. For sure. I'm saying even if we exclude that initial seed, and I say let's exclude uh, any grayscale converted assets, I think we'll have more than $100 million in assets after day one. And I'll be surprised if there's not a billion in these things after the first week. And my we, again, you and I, we could do a whole show on the uh, potential drivers of demand or lack thereof around these. But what it boils down to for me, Laura, is I do think there's a lot of pent up demand from particularly uh, registered investment advisors and, and others in the wealth management space where they're not going to touch futures based products. Um, they've been waiting for the real thing. And certainly the, the crypto environment overall is not as frothy as when uh, Bitto launched back in October of 2021, but it's still pretty healthy. And I think there's enough pent-up demand there that uh, we're going to see meaningful assets into the space. I think a lot of advisors have been waiting to make a small allocation here. And the, the other thing that I'll, I'll mention too, just again quickly, is that when, when I see issuers like BlackRock and Fidelity and Invesco uh, want to get involved in the space. They're not doing that for a $100 million um, asset opportunity. And I believe that they've been working extremely hard behind the scenes to line up initial investors. So I, I because that's a big part of this, right? So we know expense ratio is going to be a big driver in the competition here, but there's also the optics of uh, you know which ETF looks like it's going to be the winner, one of the winners, just in terms of assets and liquidity. And so let's just take BlackRock as an example. I can't imagine they're just going to show up to this party on launch day uh, without having meaningful investments lined up to go into uh, IBTC. So we'll, we'll see what happens. As a complete aside, I saw a bunch of rumors and innuendo floating around this morning that the SEC is going to deny these things, which can you imagine <laughs> if that happens? Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You know, you bring up some excellent points. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I, I, you know, look at the experience that uh, the Ether Futures ETFs uh, had. Um, you know, there's a lot of work that went on behind the scenes to get these products launched. A lot of them launched and it was a big, fat, uh, you know, fizzle, right? Not too much went in on the uh, into those funds. So, you know, you could make the argument, well, Ether futures are not the same as Bitcoin and it's still a futures-based product and, and all those things. But um, I guess at the end of the day, we're just going to have to wait and see. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. And with the Ether futures products, I do think it comes down to the fact that they're futures-based. I really believe yeah. investors want the real thing. Um, okay, another Bitcoin ETF-related prediction that uh, you have is that we're going to see options-based ETFs using Bitcoin futures. Um, so talk about that one. Are, are you saying futures only or spot two? So uh, it could be spot. Um, I, I went... I played it. I played it safe with this one um, because uh, the the truth is, it's a bit of a cheat. We actually already have the filing in place. <laughs> first trust, yeah, first trust already filed for two of these funds. Uh, they would be defined outcome funds holding flex options on a given uh, Bitcoin ETF. The prospectus does not mention whether it would be spot or futures. So it could launch on either. So if a spot ETF launches, then yeah, they might base it on that. 
you know, but if it doesn't launch, if all those naysayers or, or, or panic uh, sayers are, are correct and the SEC denies it, then, you know, the futures uh, ETF would probably be the, the one that they would uh, use to underpin this ETF. Um, there's two of them. They both uh, focus on Bitcoin exposure. One would cap the upside and cap losses at 15%. The other would cap uh, the upside and just protect against the first 15 losses, you know, like a traditional buffer fund. And it's an interesting concept. I could see a lot of practical use uh, among advisors for a fund that uh, offers exposure to Bitcoin, uh, but still protects against loss, given how volatile the asset is. Maybe this is the instrument that uh, could take off. Um, That said, there's a lot of options-based defined outcome products out there. Not all of them have gained a lot in flows. I think you have to have a really good ground game amongst advisors to see a product like this get traction. You know, on the other, other hand, that's exactly what First Trust has. So we should see. Yeah, I 100% agree with this prediction. I think you're you're right. We already do have these filings, but let's say we do get spot Bitcoin ETF approval. I think we're going to see all variations of uh, options-based ETF strategies based on that underlying spot Bitcoin. Uh, we already have, you know, carbon credit futures, uh, Bitcoin ETF filing out there. My, my only pushback, and it's not on your prediction, but just on these buffer Bitcoin ETFs is that I view the high volatility of Bitcoin as a positive attribute. That if you're owning this in a portfolio and you're properly rebalancing and you have the appropriate position sizing, that volatility actually works for you. And so I don't know why you would want to kneecap that. But nevertheless, I agree. We're going to see uh, a, a bunch of these products coming to market. All right. Your next ETF prediction for 2024 is that uh, we will see even more launches and closures than last year, which I believe... We had a record uh, year for launches. I think we were close to a record year if it wasn't a record year for closure. So I, I, I agree with this one, but give us your rationale. Sure. So uh, we saw last year in 2023, 543 ETF launches, more than 60 funds higher than what we were saw in uh, 2021. Um, of those, 75 launched in September alone which Heather Bell, my managing editor, tells me just might be the largest month for ETF launches ever. And by the way, she tracks a the weekly launches and closures in a Friday column called This Week in ETFs. It's a great way to kind of keep up to date on what's going on in, in launch land. Um, so yeah, I think in 2024, we're going to have even more. And how are we going to have more? A couple of convergent trends. So first, we're going to see these, uh, we're going to continue to see smaller, newer issuers coming to the marketplace with ideas for a single strategy or a handful of strategies based on what they're doing in SMA form for clients. We saw literally hundreds of these last year and the year before. It's all because the ETF rule uh, makes it so much easier and cheaper than it ever was before to launch an uh, an ETF. And that's just going to continue. Um, I also think we're going to see a substantial rise in the number of mutual fund to ETF conversions because, let's face it, the mutual fund just kind of isn't what it used to be, right? Um, there's there's certainly a, a role for them, but uh, that role is um, not quite as huge as it, it once was. So we saw about 40 conversions last year. That was 
barely anything, just scratching the surface compared to tens of thousands of mutual funds out there. Playing field is wide open here. And, you know, when you have launches, uh, you have closures. You got to you gotta trim the fat somewhere. So, um, you know, I don't think that we will necessarily have a bloodbath when it comes to, uh, launch, to excuse me, to closures. But, um, you know, one thing that kind of gets lost sometimes when we're looking at closures is that uh, you know, some of these funds out there, uh, the bullet shares ones come straight to mind. They have an expiration date. They end. And so, uh, you know, the, the 2024 version of the bullet shares funds are, are going to close at some point and then re be replaced with the next one. So, and there are more and more of those kinds of dated products out there. Uh, so I think that's going to contribute um, to maybe uh, an artificially high number of closures uh, for 2024. But I think, you know, the toothpaste out of the tube. When it comes to the ETF rule, you can't go back. Uh, we're just going to have more and more uh, in this year. I think another key factor here, too, is that the cost of launching an ETF has come way down. And it's yeah. still a meaningful financial commitment. I, I don't want to say that it's just easy to launch whatever you want. But I think about a firm like ETF Architect, the uh, the, the white label arm of the uh, the Alpha Architect team, you know, they continue to drive down the cost of bringing a new ETF to market. And so that does bring down the risk if you're a an ETF entrepreneur and you have a, what you think is a great idea. I, I just think you have more people willing to jump in because that cost hurdle isn't as high. So uh, I, I think that's another factor here. On the note of ETF closures, another uh, prediction that you have is that artificial intelligence ETFs join metaverse ETFs as the latest fad to flop. So are, are you talking about uh, in, are you talking about ETFs investing in AI or ETFs using AI or both? Um, so I think uh, I'm going to go bold and I'm going to say both. Um, so it's a bit of a, a, a controversial prediction, I'm sure. Um, we talked about uh, this last time I was on a little bit that um, some of the uh, AI ETFs out there saw big inflows in 2023. Um, those were the ones that were tracking the space. The ones that are actually using AI to pick stocks haven't really seen much in the way of flows in 2023. That didn't really change as we closed out the year. But what I'm talking about with my prediction was the the funds that track the space. Um, and, and look, there's no denying that artificial intelligence is revolutionizing pretty much every industry at once. It's obviously not going away anytime soon. But that's precisely why it's such a difficult trend to capture in an investment vehicle. Um, AI isn't a discrete sector. It's not a discrete technology in the same way that computers aren't necessarily a discrete sector or, or television, right? It's everything and nothing at once. So what you have is a handful of tech companies semiconductors companies, hardware manufacturers, uh, big search that were already uh, poised to profit from AI the most, or, or that, po that, that profited from AI the most, they were already the biggest tech companies that were uh, the most poised to benefit from any huge leapfrog in technology. So why buy a more expensive fund branded as AI on the tin when you can just buy a tech fund or a semis fund, capture the same exposure, have a longer track record, uh, and and maybe the same profit potential, you know, a lot of these quote unquote AI ETFs that have been flooding the market, they're really just Mag Seven 
uh, funds in disguise, meaning if you buy them, um, you're getting the same exposures <laughs> that you already have. And now your portfolio is over-concentrated in the tech sector. And, and concentration was a big theme in 2023. So I think by this time next year, AI ETFs will have lost a lot of their luster with investors, the same as metaverse ETFs did and every other fad thematic ETF out there. There's going to be some sticky assets, of course, and there's going to be some ETFs that do well and continue to do well. But, you know, look, I'm either going to be really right on this one or really wrong. I honestly, Laura, can have said that better myself. I 100% agree with this one. I think it does feel faddish. I think about, you know, work from home ETFs. You mentioned the metaverse ETFs. And certainly to what you said, we know artificial intelligence um, is here to stay. But but AI is everywhere. This impacts, uh, this cuts across all industries and different types of companies. And I think trying to package this up into a small box uh, in, in an ETF wrapper is going to be very difficult. Uh, so I, I, I guess the way that I would say it is the the AI ETFs themselves feel faddish to me. Obviously, artificial intelligence, the quote unquote technology does not. Uh, but 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 I agree with you. I think we're going to see more closures there. Um, all right. Just a couple of minutes left. Your last prediction for 2024 is that more ETF issuers will launch many versions of their high handle ETFs like we've seen with QQQ and QQQM or uh, GLD and GLDM. And this is another one. I, I like this prediction, but I'm curious, is there any particular reason or catalyst you have for this? Or is this just the usual uh, ETF fee war stuff? Hmm. I think it's um, maybe me trying to manifest what I want to see in the world. <laughs> So I, uh, you know, we talked a few months about ago about how I thought this, you know, we saw this huge influx of flows into QQQM over 2023. It was one of the most overlooked stories of the year. I still think that. Uh, and why is it overlooked? Because it's a boring story. It's a story that's so common sense, it barely even registers with people. An issuer offers investors a cheaper version of an ETF that they already love with a lower share price so they can buy more shares with the same amount of cash and then hold them for longer without it costing them an arm and a leg. I mean, why wouldn't you get assets in that fund? It's a no-brainer. So, you know, you see these slow, steady accrual of assets in these mini versions of funds like GLDM you know, the, the mini version of GLD, QQM, QQQM, excuse me, which is the mini version of the Qs. And then even something like SPLG, which is the, the mini version of, of SPY. I think this is a true greenfield of opportunity for investors. There are a lot of triple digit handle ETFs out there that are priced at 40, 50, 60 basis points. Uh, many of the older funds, the big funds around it's what an easy win it would be to launch a mini IWV or, or, or you know, a DIA, right? Uh, Dow Jones ETF. It's such a slam dunk. It would be great for investors. And it's a way to keep, uh, keep it within the family, right? To keep uh, investors staying with the brands that they trust and, and staying with the, the strategy that they trust. It's a win, win, win for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And certainly for the issuers, as, as you've said there, because they can keep that higher fee, likely successful ETF, but then be able to offer something lower cost to investors, especially investors who want to allocate 
uh, into a portfolio, smaller investors with that smaller handle. So I, I like this. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but you think something like DIA is one of the best candidates here? Or do you have other ETFs in mind? That was the one that came straight to mind. We've seen uh, quite a bit of uh, interest around the Dow Jones in 2023. Uh, I think I saw a chart that uh, just continues to to um, perform very very well compared to some of the other indexes out there. Um, you know, it's a bit of a quirky index, but then again, so is the Qs, right? So um, I, I think there could be an opportunity here. Well, Laura, such a great way to kick off the new year. I'll tell you one thing I know for sure is that your predictions will go much better than mine did last year. <laughs> so you're already starting on the uh, the right foot here. But thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And congrats again on 13 years. Thank you. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. Is the crypto winter over? Are we entering a new crypto spring? Join experts and thought leaders in the asset management space to learn all about what's next for crypto at Vetify's Crypto Symposium on January 12th. Go to vetify.com to learn more and register for this free event. That's vetify.com, V-E-T-T-A-F-I.com. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. I am now joined by both Anikit Alal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA, and Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas. And as I mentioned at the top, Anikit and Todd are simply two of the very best in the business when it comes to uh, covering ETFs, or two of the smartest ETF analysts out there. Now, if you're not familiar with CFRA, they're one of the world's leading independent investment research firms. Strategas is an institutional brokerage and advisory firm who has been ranked as the top macro-only research firm by Institutional Investor. And Anakit is now joining me from Las Vegas, and Todd is on the line with me from New York. Gentlemen, Happy New Year to you, and uh, welcome back to ETF Prime. Uh, Happy New Year, and it's great to be back on. Hey, Nate. Happy New Year. All right. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to this. You both have recently produced uh, research notes on some key ETFs and key ETF trends to watch this year. And I thought, given that you both bring uh, unique perspectives to the table, it would be fun to do a little roundtable on these and just bat around the different ideas. And so why don't we do this? Why don't I first tee up Anakit's four ETF trends to watch in uh, 2024? We can discuss and debate those. And then, Todd, we can go through your uh, four contrarian ETF ideas for 2024. And I'll tell you both, uh, no ground rules here. I'll just bring up each topic. And again, we can bat them around. So does it, that, that work for both of you? 
Sounds great. Yes, indeed. Let's go. All right. So, Anakit, the first ETF trend you highlighted to watch in 2024 is the unbundling of emerging markets exposure. And you say that for many years, investors have accessed emerging markets uh, via broad ETFs, right? Like the iShares Core MSCI Emerging Markets ETF, ticker IEMG. But you think that might change this year. So uh, explain your thinking around this. That's right, Nate. You know, these broad emerging market ETFs is the way most U.S. investors have got exposure to emerging market equities. These broad ETFs account for just under 60% of emerging market equity exposure in the U.S. There's one big problem, and the problem is that China makes up about 25 to 30% of the weight of these ETFs. And so when China underperforms, the strategy doesn't really work. I mean, if you look at 2023, a lot of the China-focused ETFs like GXC, uh, FXI, which is the iShares, China Large Cap ETF, they were all down anywhere from 11 to 13%. Whereas if you look at emerging markets, ex-China, that was up about almost 20%. So we're talking about a 30% spread here between emerging markets, ex-China, and you know Chinese ETFs last year. And, you know, if China continues to struggle, there's obviously structural issues. You know, companies look re-looking at their supply chains, um, political issues between the tensions between the U.S. and China and so forth. You know, we think investors may re-look at how they get their emerging markets exposure. And they may unbundle by trying to combine emerging markets ex-China with China ETFs and calibrate that more carefully. Or maybe, you know, use more targeted country-specific ETFs. And in fact, this trend has already kind of started. If you look at EMXC last year, it took in 4.7 billion in inflows, actually overtook Schwab's SCHE in terms of net assets. And so, you know, that's the trend we think worth keeping an eye on, particularly given the important role for China as the second largest economy and its and its kind of strategic role in supply chains. So that's one of our first trends for next for this year. Anakit, what would be some uh, ETF options that you might point to if investors do want to take this approach? So is it looking to, to ex-China ETFs, or are there specific EM countries you would point to? There's really three possible ways to do this. One is to take EMXC, you know, EMX-China ETF, EMXC is the biggest one, and then pair that with a China ETF and then calibrate those. The other option would be to use... Um, targeted country ETFs, and then kind of bundle those up into an emerging markets portfolio. And the third, and this is an interesting area, is there's basically new products that address this in more interesting ways. One example is KEM, which is a Korean shares dynamic EM strategy. And what this fund does is essentially dynamic calibrates its China exposure to kind of address this issue. That's, that's a relatively new fund. We'll have to see how it does. But it's an interesting take on, on this problem. So there's really multiple ways investors can kind of tackle this. Todd, I want to bring you in here and uh, certainly feel free to add any color to what Anakit just presented there. But the, the question I have for you is, look, every single year we keep hearing about how emerging markets are undervalued and how this is the year they're going to outperform. And that's not necessarily what, what Anakit is saying here, but I, I just feel like at the beginning of every year, emerging markets are always a topic where 
you know, people are saying, hey, investors, you need to look over it, it potentially increasing exposure here. And I feel like just about every year we're disappointed, right? I, I actually talked about this at the end of last year, that if you look at SPY versus, uh, say, EEM over the past 10 years or, or even past 15 years, really since the global financial crisis, it is ugly. So, so for example, I ran this morning in the, uh, the past 10 years, SPY is up 208%. And EEM is only up 22%. So do, do you think that could actually change? Or are we going to see more disappointment from emerging markets this year? I, I, I mean, I, I, first of all, I love this term unbundling, right? And, and to your point on all those statistics, will we see a change? Maybe, but I, I would question the durability of it, right? There's always times where you'll get laggards catching up and it might last a quarter or a half. But then things mean revert back to, back to normal. And the U.S. remains the dominant investment landscape. So um, the flaws are still there for EM, and especially when China remains the dominant region. China has returned over the last 30 years uh, an annualized return of less than 1%. And so despite all the attention we give it and the story that's there, um, you've been offered poor returns, high volatility, and leave it to the ETF industry really to come and provide a solution, uh, such as those ex-China funds that, that Anakin mentioned. And so uh, I'm, I'm totally with the idea of unbundling and taking, taking a little bit more of an active approach going forward, even if performance does perk up. When, when you talk about unbundling, I saw in another uh, note you recently wrote, you had 10 ETFs to gauge first half 2024 market conditions. And I saw that you listed the Wisdom Tree India Earnings ETF, ticker EPI. And you said this is the new emerging markets heavyweight. Um, do, do you mind elaborating on that? That that really caught my attention. Yeah. So it, it, even if you just purely look at India's weight in EM indices, it's it, I think I don't want to say it's doubled over the last decade. India seems to be the beneficiary of this divestment from China, and even even a move away from Latam to an extent. Latam was big back in the early two thousands, and now I think the attention and focus because of the demographic case for India, right? It's a growing country. I like the constituency. You have pretty large tech, financial, and consumer-type names. That's a nice mix. Uh, and so investors who need that emerging market exposure, they seem to be trafficking to EM. And so I want it to be at the forefront of that exposure if I need it, rather than, say, China or Taiwan and to extend LATAM, too. So I, I think the investors are really starting to vote there with how we um, – see India's influence picking up within emerging market indices. All right. So this is a good one. Unbundling of emerging markets uh, exposure is the first trend you're watching, Anakit. The second key ETF trend you're watching this year is increased flows and competition in the active bond ETF category. And you note that active bond ETFs only account for about 11% of assets in the uh, bond ETF category. You, you also note that only one of the top 20 largest bond ETFs is active. That's the uh, J.P. Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF, ticker JPST. But do you, you, from what you wrote, it sounds like you think this could begin to meaningfully change this year. And so give us your rationale behind this one. Sure, Nate. I, one of the key developments last year was Vanguard expanding its presence in the active bond ETF space. And we know that Vanguard is is a giant. They also very rarely launch new products. So I think every time they do, it's, it's quite strategic and quite thoughtful. Uh, there's, as you pointed out, the if, if we look at the, you know, the bond ETF space and aggregate, it seems like it's completely indexed. But if you look at actually get into the details, you see that there's some nuance there. 
when it comes to broad bond ETFs, when I say broad, I mean anything that kind of portfolios that hold, you know, assets across the duration and credit spectrum. Actually, there's a fair amount of active management. You know, it's almost 20% of broad bond ETFs are active in contrast with treasury and corporate bond ETFs, which are only, you know, 3 to 4% active. And so there's a couple of important points here. One is that Vanguard's entry puts it in, in competition with more traditional active players, you know, players like Dimensional, JP Morgan, and First Trust, rather than its, its kind of conventional competitors like, you know, BlackRock and State Street. And also the fact that they offer much cheaper products in this space is going to be interesting. Their funds are at about 10 and 20 basis points relative to 35, 40 basis points for the competition. So given, you know, that's Vanguard, given that it's a space that has seen some success in active, we think this is an important trend to monitor this year. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. If you look that uh, Vanguard Core Plus Bond ETF ticker VPLS, uh, that launched in December is coming in at 20 basis points. And I, I guess, Todd, the question that I would have for you here, and again, feel free to add any color to what Annika just walked through, but I, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this rise of active ETFs overall, because as Annika went through that, uh, clearly costs are playing a key role here. And, and we covered that a lot last year, right? When you look at the success of firms like Dimensional and Avantis and, and, and Vanguard, which I just mentioned in the active bond ETF space. And we, we all know that a lower fee, that lowers the hurdle an active manager has to jump over to generate outperformance. Th th this isn't rocket science, but do you think there's maybe too much focus being placed on fees but by investors and maybe not enough on what these ETFs are actually doing underneath the hood? Uh, perhaps. You know, I, I, fees are already much lower than I think they've historically been, right, especially compared to mutual funds. And to me, this is all about a vehicle shift. You've had some $800 billion out of actively managed fixed income mutual funds over the last two years. So you have all these roster of issuers now going into the ETF space. And I'll give you an anecdote, and this comes from Eric Valchunas at Bloomberg. They hosted a ETFs in depth event last month, and on one of the panels from some heavyweight issuers, they all agreed that active fixed income is really the next space of growth. And so um, I will certainly respect the, uh, the folks who are up on that stage their opinion, and I think you're seeing it in the flows data. Annika mentioned only 11% of ETFs, fixed income ETFs are active, and so that's the next major growth area. Um, fee, high fee or not, um, everyone's going to be involved there. Yeah, I agree with that. And if you look at the flows last year, we did see outsized flows into fixed income ETFs overall. And I think you're right, just given the uh, rate environment and, and even potentially the credit environment, depending upon what the economy does, you may have more investors that want uh, somebody at the wheel here on their, their fixed income uh, allocations. Um, all right, Anakit, your third ETF trend to watch this year is one where I think we might actually have a little bit of a debate on. Maybe not. We'll see. But uh, you're watching the continued growth of options-based ETFs. So covered call strategies like the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, ticker JEPI, or the uh, Defined Outcome ETFs, Buffer ETFs. And you know how both of those categories underperformed last year uh, relative to the broader equity markets? But that did not stop investors from piling into these things. And so you think perhaps that's an indication these ETFs have longer-term staying power. Um, now, <laughs> where the debate comes in, you may or may not be aware, 
I'm already on record as saying I believe the entire covered call ETF category is a bubble. I, I, I think there are already way too many products out there. I feel like this was really a 2022 fad that carried over into last year. Um, I, I will say I do think defined outcome ETFs certainly have more specific use cases. And so I, I want to be clear, I don't view those as a fad. I'm more bullish on that category overall. But um, Annika, give us your perspective on the options-based ETF category. Yeah, Nate, as you said, you know, it's been interesting to look last year and see how many, you know, the, the, ad, the amount of flows these products took in despite the markets being going up as these, you know, these products are more suited for flat or kind of, uh, kind of declining markets. But uh, the question is, is this, is this a fad? Um, you know, every time we see success in the ETF space, a lot of copycats pile in and we know all of them are not going to succeed. Uh, clearly here, all these products are not going to succeed, but we think as an overall category, options-based products are, are likely here to stay. The, the growth may slow down. By the way, JP, I think, had negative flows in December. But as a category, we think this, this will remain, and primarily because it appeals to a bunch of investors who are either focused on income or maybe currently in, in, in money market funds and kind of view this as an alternative to being in cash, and so, you know, 2024, if, if, if it's a strong year, I think that will be a real test for this category. But right now, we think options-based products are likely to continue to grow, although maybe not at the same pace as the last couple of years. Ty, do you agree with that? And, and I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's funny, as I was thinking about our conversation today, and I, I was thinking about flows into an ETF like Jeppy, which, as I'm sure you're aware, took in something like $13 billion last year, even though it underperformed SPY by 16%. Uh, but I thought about your chart on the flows into TLT in 2023. I included this in my uh, little annual ETF chart fest. But you compared the flows into TLT into currency-hedged ETFs several years back, right, an ETF like DXJ, or even flows into ARKK in 2020 and 2021. Do you think JEPI could be similar here? And that, again, maybe this was more of a 2022 or 2023 ETF fad or, or mania, and perhaps it's going to fade, just like we saw with DXJ or ARKK. Do you, or I guess do you believe this category has real staying power longer term? I, I agree with you on the, on the defined outcome aspect of this. I think there's a real use case for that, especially as retire, you know, folks get older. There are plenty of assets under management for the, for the boomer generation, right, the older generation. So that makes sense for them. But you can always count on the ETF industry to create a craze. A few years ago, it was innovation and disruption. And to me, this most recent covered call craze is, is reflective of that. Um, I think the you know, the folks at Morgan have done a phenomenal job with marketing this product. It's showing that in the flows. 2022 is the perfect year for it. Um, but if the bull market and stocks continues, I think a lot of investors are going to be unhappy with the design of these products. Now, on the other side of that, I do think this is also reflective of the saturation of vanilla core-based products, right? Those are all taken care of from from iShares, Vanguard, State Street, and whatnot, and Vesco. And so this seems like the next evolution of these option derivative-based products. It's just maybe we need to stop following the leader a little bit and kind of 
diversify out into the types of strategies that are around there. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it going forward. I think those are all excellent points. I completely agree. Uh, and, and look, we know ETF issuers are always going to try to uh, innovate. And if a product gets hot, like we saw from Jeppy, inevitably we're going to see copycat products come into the market. Well, one thing I'll mention to both of you, and I don't, I don't want to uh, talk much about this because I promised myself I would stay away from the spot Bitcoin ETF topic. But if you want one potential bull scenario for uh, options-based strategies, if we do get spot Bitcoin ETF approval and you start seeing the options ecosystem you know, on these ETFs flourish and, and develop, and Laura, Laura Kruger and I talked about this earlier, I think we could for sure see options-based uh, strategies around spot Bitcoin ETFs. But let, let's stay away uh, from that. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Anakit, the, uh, the fourth ETF trend you're watching in 2024 is uh, momentum and tech-driven growth and risk on themes. And I, I like this one. So you know how investors piled into money market funds last year, which seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Scoop up 5% plus yields that investors hadn't seen in a long time. But the problem was those investors, or I should say at least the ones who moved out of equities to invest in money market funds, they missed out on an enormous rally. And so now you suggest this could all uh, reverse, that money could come out of money market funds and find a home in the areas that have been performing best, such as the tech sector or the communication services sector, because, of course, we know investors like to chase uh, performance. So g give us some color on that one. I, again, I like that one. So 2023 was, you know, was all about tech and, and growth teams. Those were the best performers. Uh, obviously, a lot of discussion around the Magnificent Seven. The queues were up, you know, 55% in the year. So the question was, you know, what happens this year? It, does that continue or not? And I actually, for this, lean a little bit on, on analysis done by my colleague, Sam Stovall, who's our chief investment strategist. And he's actually analyzed sectors since the 1990s, since the gig sectors were created. And what he found is that historically, when you're coming out of down years, right, years that weren't so good, the best strategy was to rotate into the sectors that did poorly. So, for example, coming out of 2022, you know, if you rotated into tech and communication services, you do well. And we actually saw that happen last year. Um, conversely, when you're coming out of years that have actually been an up year, like we just did now, uh, the, historically, the best strategy has been to let your sector winners ride. Uh, now, of course, we know that past performance obviously doesn't mean it happens every single time. But just given that context and given that rates may get cut, it's certainly feasible that tech and growth may continue to uh, sustain momentum. And the last point I just mentioned is that our fundamental tech analysts, you know, look very closely at a lot of the big big tech names, including the Magnificent Seven. And in their view, valuations aren't stretched yet. They think that actually tech will grow into its multiple. Uh, they think there's probably about 10% EPS growth uh, next year in tech. And so given all of these um, factors, you know, we think that ETS focused on tech and growth will probably sustain, probably with more volatility um, than last year. But it seems likely that that will continue. We've already seen, by the way, kind of some risk on appetite, right? In the last three months, I think IWM, which is a small cap, ETF is up about 12 to 15% in the last three months. So kind of indicative that, you know, uh, growth is broadening a little bit and there's a little bit more breadth in the market as well. Yeah. And your point on valuations, that really caught my attention, because, again, you, you noted that CFRA actually believes the tech sector 
uh, overall is still growing into its multiple, that the largest tech firms have strong balance sheets and, and cash flows. And so maybe the space isn't quite as frothy as uh, some might think. I think that's some, uh, some good food for thought. Todd, I'm actually going to use this as a uh, jumping off point to get into your four contrarian ETF ideas for 2024, because one of those ideas uh, is around high beta growth. And you specifically note the ARC suite of ETFs, which obviously the types of companies ARC traffic's in, those aren't necessarily uh, free cash flow generators like the Magnificent Seven, right? They're not sitting on a bunch of cash on their balance sheets. But um, I, I do think this plays into what Anakit is saying and that, and you covered this uh, fantastically last year, we saw over a trillion dollars go into money market funds. And that could start coming out and maybe after the type of year that the ARK Innovation ETF had, up 68% last year, investors might look to an ETF like that. So I'd love to have you expand uh, on your thoughts around this, because again, I think you and Anakit overall are aligned here in that we could see some real investor interest and risk on themes. And you have this, again, flood of money that could come out of money market funds. Yeah, so the, the, the two sayings I have in mind with this is, is one is cash is comforting, but opportunity cost is real. Right, and, and you mentioned a trillion dollars in the money market funds. You're getting five percent yields. We haven't had that in in decades, but you missed out on a twenty some odd percent of some return. And I get again, it's part of a portfolio too. But um, there's real risk of missing major equity-like returns. And then the other thing I've, I want to keep in mind for 2024 is perspective. Uh, great year for equities, but keep in mind a large chunk of equity ETFs are still down over the last two or three years, right? We still haven't made new highs since the 2022 peak. So to me, that says, okay, maybe if there's a rate cut, money starts to come out of money market funds, and that cash can find its way to equities and ideally power the market higher. And so if the Fed is on hold or doing these kind of little precise cuts throughout the year, that to me says that's a pretty good environment for high beta growth ARC type names. And ARC specifically, the sentiment is far different than it was three years ago, right? When they were taking in money hand over fist every day in terms of creations. Um, I think they had a, probably some modest outflows last year, and so that's a lot more room to get aggressive there. Uh, and those are the types of strategies when things get really hot in terms of sentiment that tend to run. So uh, maybe it's not the arc suite that you go, maybe it's something like just small cap growth or whatnot. Um, but I, I do think there is a little bit of a tailwind there for those uh, funds to work outside of any speed bumps we get here in the first quarter of the year. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I, I am curious if you look at ETFs overall. In 2023, we had about $600 billion um, flow into the products. I had uh, predicted a trillion dollars in inflows last year, and I think one of the reasons we didn't get there was because of what we saw out of money market funds and, and flows going into those. Todd, I mean, do you, do you think we can make a run at a trillion dollars in ETF inflows this year, or is that too optimistic. And obviously, a lot depends on what the market does. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. I think it all, it is so market dependent, right? You think back to 2020, 2021, we did, uh, what, $800, 900000000000 billion, I think, overall. Mm -hmm. That was a runaway market. So you'll get the five, $600 billion, I think, just as a matter of the vehicle. Then the rest will depend on what the market backdrop is like. At least that's how I'm thinking about it. Anakin, any thoughts on uh, potential ETF flows for 2024? I just feel like the market is is 
maturing a little bit. To me, trillion seems a little aggressive. I, I would say somewhere between 500 to 750 would probably be a good year. No, I think that sounds uh, reasonable. Probably a good bet based on what we've seen the past couple of years. Um, all right, Todd, let's keep moving here. Another potential contrarian idea you noted for this year is industrials. And you highlighted that flows haven't really been going into broad-based industrial sector ETFs. Instead, they've been going into uh, defense-related ETFs like the iShares U.S. Aerospace and Defense ETF, ticker ITA. But you explain how uh, industrials can be a nice complement to mega-cap growth, which obviously we were just talking about. So give us some quick thoughts around that one. Yeah, I, I, I always get interested when... There's a sector that is outperforming but is not endorsed by overly aggressive flows. Right, Flows aren't a signal, but they at least help explain market psychology and sentiment of what's going on. And the industrials seem to fit that bill. It's a very diverse sector. There's no weight over 5%. Right, It's, it's uh, very spread out among all the constituents, whether you're equal-weighted or cap-weighted. There's no behemoths like Microsoft and Apple and Amazon and whatnot. And we're in the midst of a manufacturing boom. So I like the story there. It's a great compliment if you're worried about your tech and growth exposure within the S&P. I think it's as simple as that, right? I just like this as a nice cyclical compliment to what's going on from the, from the growthier corners of the market. And is it looking at, I guess, the obvious here, something like XLI, the Industrial Select Sector Spider ETF, or other ETFs you might eye in this category? So XLI, RSPN, that's the Invesco Equally Weighted uh, ETF. And then I also, I think this one flies under the radar, AIRR. That's the uh, Rich Bernstein Industrials Renaissance. And it's a little bit more of a mid-cap tilt. And so those are the companies I think are really benefiting from money coming back in terms of you know, reshoring or deglobalization, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's a very under-the-radar fund that's performed very nicely. I like you digging deep in the ETF toolbox, uh, as you always do. Anakit, any quick thoughts on the industrial sector? I think Todd makes some interesting points. At, at CFRA, currently, we, have, we are neutral. Uh, we have a market weight on, on industrial, so we have a three-star on, on XLI, for example. Having said that, we do have, if you look at the underlying stocks in XLI, we have four stars on some of them. Uh, Caterpillar is one, Uber is another. So that's kind of where we are right now on, on industrials. All right, Todd, your third contrarian ETF idea is actually another sector you're watching, and that's uh, healthcare. And you note how there have been extreme outflows from healthcare ETFs over the past year, which uh, that, that follows several years of hardly any interest in the space. My question here is, um, do, do you think this could be more investors bottom fishing the sector? Because if I look at say XLV, the Healthcare Select Sector Spider ETF last year. That was only up about 2% versus 26% plus on the S&P 500. So is this investors, and it's not like it had a brutal year, but is this investors maybe looking at an undervalued sector or do you see some real potential catalyst here besides that? I, I, def I definitely think rotation is a part of it, right? This is just for the tactical allocators that are out there that may switch up their, their styles and sectors um, to get away from tech and communication type exposures. I also think, as you mentioned, the outflows are interesting to me, right? Maybe not uh, as, as aggressively positioned as other sectors. And then if you, use, if you look at healthcare's relative performance to the S&P over the last three to five years, it's in the bottom decile of relative performance over the last 30 to 35 years worth of data. So um, that's an extreme. It's interesting to me. Obviously, it's not quite a signal, but the rubber band only stretches so far before you tend to get a mean reverting move back. And I think this almost ties away, ties back into the high beta growth play, that if, if you have a Fed that's on hold or perhaps going to cut, 
you can dig a little deeper than the XLV and go to something like XBI. That's biotech if you want a little bit more juice and risk involved. And that's another sector that has had a really bad run here. And so I'm just looking at this from a, a mean reverting um, idea, where, and especially given the, the major outflows too. Anikit, anything that you would uh, add here? Does CFRA have any strong views on the healthcare space? Uh, healthcare is actually another sector where we're currently neutral. That's, uh, on XLV, for example, we have a three-star. But having said that, to, to Todd's point, you know, we have to see what happens with the Fed. If, if we're not right about growth and we see more of a value-oriented year, then maybe healthcare does, does better. Uh, I mean, one of the big stories in healthcare this year was, of course, was Novo Nordisk, right, with the success of Ozempic and Wigovi, but it's actually not held in, in the in the domestic healthcare ETS. So unfortunately, that kind of uh, gets missed in some of the, the larger uh, healthcare ETFs. But yeah, certainly an interesting sector to keep an eye on. All right, gentlemen, just a, a few minutes left here. Todd, your fourth contrarian ETF uh, idea for 2024, I would say brings us full circle to where we started our conversation. So you note that Europe could be a place investors look this year. And you, you probably already know what I'm going to say on this. Uh, I, I apologize in advance. And that's that international stocks seem to be a contrarian idea every year, right? It's just so tempting. Uh, but like I said earlier, most years we've been disappointed. I know we were talking EM earlier, but even if we look to developed international, it's performed a little bit better, but still significantly uh, un underperformed the S&P 500 if you go back over the past decade or, or 15 years. Um, so why are you looking at Europe? Okay. And... and this is the one I feel most uneasy about, most nauseous about, because I know the, the rug pull is a consistent factor with uh, European equities. So I like that it has a similar consistency to industrial. So if the industrial idea works out, it should translate overseas. Um, and I also, I, I think, I say Europe broad-based, but I also like the idea of unbundling Europe. Play a little bit more active at the ETF level. Go country by country, right? So Anakin just mentioned Novo Nordisk. I could buy, I believe it's Denmark, E-D-E-N, for my shares, to get my Novo Nordisk exposure along with some of the other companies that are in there, such as the industrial plays. Um, so rather than buying just, say, the Vanguard or iShares Europe, I think you look for the right constituencies that are out there, such as a Denmark or a Germany, right? I think it's going to come down to that point a little bit more active. Um, and again, as a complement, given the industrial exposure across that region to the S&P 500. I'm sensing a theme here with international. Again, it's unbundled, uh, whether you're looking at emerging markets or, uh, or developed international. Anakit, just about a minute left. Do you have any quick thoughts on uh, European stocks or even developed international ETFs overall? Yeah, I think the one thing to keep in mind is currency hedging. We saw last year in Japan, for example, that the currency hedged ETFs significantly out outperformed the unhedged versions. And that's something that you know investors didn't fully take advantage of. So just something to kind of layer on on top of what Todd said, which is thinking about currency hedging as an additional strategy on top of the, the base exposure. No, I think that's a good point. And if you look at an ETF like uh, DXJ, the Wisdom Tree Japan uh, hedged ETF, that had a great year last year. And, uh, I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the currency hedging craze back in the, the middle part of the 10s. But uh, I think you could see that come back. Uh, e even more as investors look internationally and, and especially if they want to play an individual country and, and hedge the currency. But Anakit, Todd, uh, I really enjoyed this format this week. So thank you both for going along with this. Again, Happy New Year uh, to you both. And thank you for joining me. 
Thank you, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thanks, Anakit. That was Todd Sohn, ETF and technical strategist at Strategas, and Anakit Olal, head of ETF data and analytics at CFRA. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, ER Shares. If you would like to learn more about the ER Shares Entrepreneurs ETF or the ER Shares Next Gen Entrepreneurs ETF, you can visit entrepreneurshares.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Moritz Pott, founder and CEO of Tema ETFs. We're going to take a look at their uh, expert-led institutional-grade thematic ETFs. And I can't rule out having some spot Bitcoin ETF discussion uh, next week as well, depending upon what develops here over the next week. So stay tuned for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.